Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Golden Age Premier. High-quality, vintage-style products at an affordable price point. To find out more, go to goldenagepremier.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fuse Audio Labs. Uncompromising emulations of classic and rare studio processors in revolutionary plug-in form. For more info, go to FuseAudioLabs.de. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Today's guest is an old friend of URM and someone who is a lot more inspiring than I even knew. His story is one of insane adversity. And those of you who think you've got it hard and the world is stacked against you and there's a mountain to climb to get to where you want to get in your career, this episode's for you. Hopefully, it'll give you a little inspiration. On today is Mr. Seth Munson, who is a highly regarded producer, instrumentalist, mixer, and mastering engineer out of Colorado Springs, formerly L.A. Seth has worked with numerous acts such as Drake Bell, Sevian, Alters, which is a band that he plays the guitar in, Leaders, and of course, the late Christina Grimmie. I now give you Seth Munson. Seth Munson. <laughs> Welcome to the URM podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, yes. This is so good. <laughs> What's this music called? Intro. intro music. Yeah, perfect. It's called intro outro. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Did I hope this think? is actually in the Zen fucking caster thing. It, it is. It records. Yes, perfect. I really, really hope that as you go on through life, you can only get an intro as cool as that one. That's probably the most epic intro I'll ever get. Ever. <laughs> that was really great. <laughs> God damn. I feel like I've been shortchanging the podcast all these years by not using that. <laughs> I would agree. This shit's, that's dope. Yeah. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and when the when the drum beat comes in, it's just like just right. It's perfect. Yeah, I know. Well, you know what else is perfect? You're perfect. Welcome mm-hmm. to the podcast, Seth Munson. Welcome. Awesome. Thanks. Stoked. I've kind of known you and not known you and known you and not known you for a long time. Like ever since we were both admins of this group that doesn't exist. I always thought you were cool, and I remember talking to you back way back in like 2012 and 13 and you were admining this group and you recorded rock and metal and you were telling me that you were done with rock and metal and you were going to work your way into pop whatever it took you were going to make it happen and you did yeah congratulations 
Thank you. Well, I mean, it's been a while, right? So it's not like a new thing anymore, but I just want to remind you that I remember talking to you really, really late at night when you were telling me how you... How much I hated it. Yeah, how much you hated (laughs) it and how you felt like your life was going nowhere, recording rock and metal, and you had to worry about your family. You had to figure out a way to make it happen and pop, or you would would know what to do with yourself. It wasn't only that, though. I was like, even when I wasn't working or touring, I was only listening to pop and dance records. So it was like, at at that point, I wasn't even... (laughs) I wasn't... (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) No, that's... (laughs) That's perfect. I don't even remember what I was saying. You were talking about how uh, even when you were touring, you... Oh, yeah. On my drive shifts, I only listened to pop and dance stuff. I, I was just getting burned out on on. What is metal it about metal that burned you out? I'm not, I'm not sure. I think it was touring it for, you know, however many months out of the year, hearing that every day for, you know, four hours a night, and then coming home to work on the same exact stuff. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to be epic the whole time. It's just going to (laughs) be... dramatic okay sorry okay sorry 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 so (laughs) that actually used to happen to me as well you'd go on tour playing metal get home and record metal and then hang out with people who listen to metal is just too much for me yeah and i started hating like the songs like well it's weird because then i went to pop which is overly formulated but i feel like metal and rock even was just at that point it was more just who can write the most breakdown and fit them into a song type shit. And I was like, man, this is so boring. <laughs> like, I've, I've heard it. I get it. Okay, but you yeah. know, I know lots of people who say they want to go into other genres and they never really do. They stay in the genre that they know the best, be it metal, and then they dip their toe in pop. They never get that good at it. So their pop offerings are real crappy and then they never really get clients in it. And I've just seen that whole, I'm going to try another genre thing fail a lot. So I'm wondering why did it not fail for you? First of all, how long did it take? But like, if you had to like simplify it to like a couple ideas, let's talk about why it didn't fail for you. Why did it work out? Because actually it's not that common. I guess it was aligning myself with people that were already doing it. That and how long it took was like probably the full transition was three or four years. So it's not like you just went to LA and showed up. And they were like, play ball. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Nope, that's definitely, definitely not how it went. No, I actually, it took me a while even to get out to LA. What it was was just doing a lot of free shit for people. Uh, and like you were living in Denver, it. right? Uh, Colorado Springs. So about, yeah, like an hour south of Denver. You're saying that you did free shit for people even when you were already, you know, making a living at the heavier stuff. Okay. Oh, I had to. It didn't matter if I was making a living doing heavier stuff. They didn't care. They wanted to know if I could do pop. So, you know, they're like, why are we going to pay you when we have, you know, Manny or Serban on on speed dial i'm like well send me something over and i'll show you what i could do pretty much that's, see, pretty that's much why it really really bugs me i don't know sometimes you see these like recording sites that try to give people business advice and they talk about always charge like and you know what i agree that you shouldn't let yourself be taken advantage of ever but that's giving people really bad advice oh, to always charge like there's plenty of times in your life 
in music where you're going to have to do freebies. I remember once in like 2013, I got asked to do a freebie for Zach Wild for some TV thing. And I had already been making really decent money at this for years at that point. Like I didn't have to do free work. I did it. I did it for free for him with a smile. It was yeah. for like some ESPN thing because I know that Zach Wild has money, first of all, but that wasn't the point. The point was you're getting tested exactly, and you're not worth paying for if you have to be tested and you can either go with it or not. Exactly. Because I see those two all the time and I'm like the websites that are like always charge. And I'm like, dude, that would never work in the songwriting world specifically. There's for songwriters, there's no upfront fee, almost never. And it's all always backend. But it's like, how are they going to charge when that's uncommon when they can, you know, a label or a publisher can go to 15,000 different writers that are just going to write the song and then take backend? Not going to happen. They're not going to go to them. It's not going to, it's not going to happen. That's exactly right. Okay. So you did a bunch of free work. How did you get yourself in the space to even get the opportunity to do the free work? Because I mean, I know for my example, it just getting asked to do something for Zach Wild. It's not like, it's not like just anybody's going to get that opportunity. That came to me through contacts that I was working very, exactly. very closely with who knew I had just done the creative live programming class for the Creative Live Easy Drummer programming class. And so these people knew that I could program drums that needed pr drum programming. And that's why they asked. They didn't just find some engineer they didn't know. Exactly. So just to get to the point where the opportunity comes your way, you've got to be in the right place and time. But how did you get into the right place and time with the pop stuff? I was on tour and I was in San Francisco and this person came out to one of my shows and they asked me, you know, just how things going. And I probably probably was just like, dude, I'm bummed and I'm burned out on metal music and I'm trying to get into pop stuff. And he was like, whoa, I'm doing pop stuff. And he, I was like, dude, let me mix something for you. I'll do it. I don't care. I just wanted experience and to to get my hands on something that's different than metal. That's how, that's what actually what happened. I was on tour. And then, uh, yeah, I mixed it. He went on to show someone and that person didn't really care for the song, but he was like, who makes this? This is awesome. Get me in contact with them. And that's basically where it all started. Uh, can you share who that person was? That was Steven Reza. And at the time he was working with, he, he was doing a lot of stuff with this production company called The Stereotypes. Shit, dude, they just won however many Grammys. They did that whole new Bruno Mars record, the most recent one that just came out. You know, they're like killing it. And so he was like involved in that group. He was doing a lot of stuff for Interscope. And he was like, I only focus on production and songwriting. I'm terrible at mixing and I need someone to come on and mix everything for me. And so that was a lot of free stuff right there. Me just going, sure, send it to me. So I'm doing all this free work while at the same time, I'm still working on metal to pay my bills because that was the only way that I was, I was paying my bills was working on metal. So I just started working double and overtime on everything. And I was doing all this free stuff because I wanted to get into what I actually wanted to be doing. At what point did you transition into getting paid for it? So when Steven would land a production and then because he would, he would write stuff for free for pitch, right? Um, and then he would pitch it. Ah, okay. So, okay. So he needed you to mix yes. these pitches. Yes. So, okay. This all makes sense now. For a second there, I was like, we just got done saying you should mix for free. But like this guy who is like up there in the industry and writing hits is like already likes your stuff and isn't paying you. Seth, what's going on? Like, it's because we need to talk about not getting taken advantage of. Like, it's... 
<laughs> really important. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so I get it. So he was doing the pitches for free. Yep. So he needed someone who would mix them for free as well. Yep. And then hopefully you would both get a back end. Got it. Exactly. So he would cut me in on a production budget when a song would cut and land. Okay. Awesome. And how often would that happen? I have no idea. Sometimes it was never just I kidding. mean, yeah, no, sometimes it it's so weird. There would be sometimes maybe five, ten in a month, and then maybe three to four, five, six months where there was nothing. You know, that's that's just had the name of the game. That's how it goes. Okay. Did you know that that's how it would go? Hell no. I had no idea. I had no clue. But I mean, who would have who would have told me is how I feel. Like yeah. I didn't really have a mentor in that sense other than Steven. I had no, that's why it also took so many years for me to fully transition from rock and metal to pop. It was just because I had to keep paying bills. <laughs> so I had to keep taking on metal and rock projects until the pop stuff was sustainable. Okay, I understand. At what point did you end up in LA? It was when Steven was signing with Warner, uh, Warner Chapel. He was basically like, hey, this is the guy that I do everything with. You should look into him getting him a deal too and the first thing they said is 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 he in la and steven's like no and they said then we don't care and then and, and i was like shit i literally that day when he told me that i made some phone calls and tried to figure it out how i could get out there yeah how to, how to make it work I, you know i just had to do what i needed to do and i did make it work you know i went out there probably within the month i was out in la okay so you're married and have one or two kids two kids yeah okay so they stayed behind, right? Yeah. And that was hard. I was coming home every other weekend or so. It varied depending on what projects I had going on. I guess since you had already toured, maybe you were used to the separation already? Yeah, a bit. And they were as well. Okay, cool. So, man, it must be great to have a supportive family unit. Oh, definitely. Yeah. There is no way I could do it without my wife. Oh, here it is. <laughs> here it is. <laughs> Sorry, I had to walk you into no, that one. Perfect. That was perfect timing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I had to walk you into that one. So you go to L.A., and is it suddenly like a bunch of work, or was it slow going? Actually, it was suddenly a bunch of work, but it was all... <laughs> it was all pitch work, all of it, which sucked. And it was really bad. We were actually working on probably 20 to 30 records a month, all for free, all for pitch in hopes that they landed. How did you pay for it? Uh, I was just still doing metal, still doing rock mixes. I was just working remotely at that point. Okay. And I'd also schedule stuff to fly back to Colorado. And if someone wanted a full production, I would take two weeks off of L.A., fly to Colorado, work on it, and fly back. It was rough. Yeah, I, re I remember, man. I remember talking to you through all this time. You did this kind of parallel to when I quit production to start URM. So, yep. and like went from making a lot of money to zero very quickly. <laughs> like I remember one of the first months after launching the podcast, my income was like $1,300. Yeah, I mean, you're starting over completely. Brutal. I remember feeling a kinship with you over that. How long did it take until you got like that first sign of light, I guess, or that first, you know, light at the end of the tunnel or like hit or situational change where you knew it was going to be okay? Has it even happened yet? I don't know. That That's a tough one for me. I mean, definitely, but there's always doubts. I mean, there's still even months, you know, where I'm like three months of not people not paying invoices, more so labels. They're the worst. There's times where it's just like, oh my God, this is, I mean, I always know that it's going to 
come back around and it always does, you know, because I've been doing this forever. So I have faith that it's all working out. But man, there's I don't think there's ever a time where it's just straight. Oh, yeah, everything's perfect. Everything's fine. Even back then, I don't think there was ever moments of that. I just kept pushing and just kept going regardless of how I was feeling. Okay, so when you're doing a bunch of pitch work out in L.A., going back and forth between two cities, booking rock and metal stuff to pay the bills, that sounds pretty intense. Yeah. A lot of travel. Too much travel, it feels like. I was probably doing five to 10,000 miles a month, which for some people isn't crazy, but for a producer that just is trying to transition into pop, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of nuts. <laughs> Were you driving or flying? Flying. Hell no, I won't do that drive. So did you get status? You must have. Yeah, I definitely did. That helps yeah. a little bit. So as far as the pop work goes, did you have to develop a whole new set of skills in order to really be able to pull that off? Maybe not skills. I think it was a mindset. And it was more of reprioritizing what should be prioritized in a mix. You know, like like rock. Like vocals. Exactly. Rock guys love snare, right? Or kick or guitars. In pop world, you you should be able to mute everything but the vocal and, you know, everyone will still be happy. <laughs> Pretty much. That's how it feels. So, yeah, it was, it was re, relearning what people are wanting and what they're expecting. Because I knew what rock and metal guys were wanting, but I needed to learn what pop people were expecting and what they want. Did you have to kind of, like, retrain your instincts? Maybe. I, I feel like since I, for so long, I wanted to transition into pop, I do feel like my rock and metal mixes were already starting to go in a pop direction. Like I was starting to, my uh, rock and metal mixes were influenced by pop mixes. So I would mix vocals a bit louder. I would I would do things that were probably unorthodox in the rock and metal world. I don't feel like there was any point where I, I straight was like, okay, now I'm going to do everything differently. It was all fluid in a way. Got it. Well, all right, since we're talking about vocal production and in a pop context, and we both agree that it's generally the most important element of the mix. What are you doing differently in a pop context to bring the vocals to life? Everything is performance. But if I'm only mixing and I don't have control over performance, it's... Hold on, go back to everything is performance. What do you mean by that? I mean, you can, if you're going to sing a lifeless record, it doesn't matter how well I'm going to mix it. It's going to be lifeless regardless. Like, I can make it sound incredible, but if there's no emotion and nothing pulling the audience audience into listening to it, it doesn't matter how good it sounds, in my opinion. But how is that different than a rock record? I mean, a rock record... It's not. It's not. I'm saying it all starts with the performance, for sure. Isn't it funny that people think that pop vocals are all, like, glued together programmed? Oh, yeah. It's hilarious. It's super funny. <laughs> I don't get it. Talk about, like, a typical um, vocal production in a pop context. Like, what goes into it? How much time are you guys spending on it? Are you guys going for full takes? Or are you going word by word? Like, what do you mean? Well, a lot of it starts with writing because usually vocals are tracked in the writing session, at least in my experience. I'm sure there's cases where it's not or say if uh, like an artist is picking up a song for pitch, obviously that's going to be a bit different. But typically it starts with writing. We all get the right flow and the right everything from the writing. And then from there, we start demoing it out. And then they're practicing and changing things up throughout the demo stage. And then we track like a final vocal. And then when it comes to the final vocal, we're doing line by line, verse by verse type stuff. And we probably have the vocalist track 20, 30 times and then we comp through it. Personally, I do it all live. Like I want them to be right there with me, making the decisions with me, even tuning and stuff right there before we move on. So that way later 
on when they, you know, they're listening to the record at home. They're like, oh, wait, this vocal doesn't sound right. I never get that anymore because we did it all together. We picked everything together. There's no surprises down the 20 road. 20 or 30 times. That makes that makes sense. How do you keep them from expiring? Just ask them. Talk to them. <laughs> you see, how, how's your throat feeling? I'm starting to hear that you're a little hoarse. And they go, oh, yeah, I'm starting to feel it. Or they say, oh, I'm trying to do that. I'm just trying something a little bit different. It's just communicating with them and seeing where they're at, how they're feeling. I mean, there's plenty of times I'll call a session early. I mean, they could only be there for an hour and I'll call it early just because I could tell they're not feeling it or their voice is going out already. It's not worth it to push them the extra little bit and then potentially put them out for however many weeks. I'd rather them go home, rest up, come back in two days and let's nail it out. And I think it should be mentioned that you mainly are doing singles with these people, right? Uh, Yeah. I would say so, for the most part. I mean, usually they come back, though, and they want more. I guess what I'm getting at is that when you're doing it 20 or 30 times or more, you're not like you're doing 13 songs like that. Yeah, this is is all for a single song. We're focusing on one song at a time if there's multiple, but it's usually a single. Okay, and but basically you're getting that vocal performance-wise to be just the ever-loving shit, basically. Oh, yeah. I'll comp the hell out of vocals just to get it so, you know, as close as we can to being the final. At what point does fixing it up come in? I do it mid-comp. And I'll ask, since the vocalist is typically right there beside me, I'll ask him, hey, I really love the performance. Is it cool if I tune this part and clean it up? Uh, 99% of the time, they're like, please tune everything. So I usually comp so we don't need to tune. If I need to tune something, they're almost always perfectly fine with it. I have never met a pro who wasn't okay with it. The only people I ever meet who are not okay with it are amateurs who have pride issues. It's the same with the drum editing thing. All the super pro drummers that are happen to also be fucking amazing are generally cool with whatever you got to do. I mean, even guitarists are down to do like the note by note stuff. You know, like top dudes, they don't give a shit. They know yeah. they can play it. It's about getting the right capturing of a recording so they can release it. They know they can play it live. I know they can play it live, but let's make sure it's the cleanest it can be. If that's know? the goal. If the goal is cleanest. If yes. If, you know, if we're talking a Kurt Ballou production, it might have a different goal. But they're not going to Kurt Ballou for a clean-ass, fucking, super pristine, everything perfect record. They're going for him to be this really raw, yeah. emotional album that's pure and whatever you want to call it, you know? Exactly. I think that the best times I've ever had in the studio, regardless of what I'm working on, has been when me and the musicians are on the same page about what the job is, like what our goal is, and that we'll do anything it takes to get there. Like, so there's no like, oh, we're going to try that. Fuck that. It's not real. Oh, dude, I vet out any artist that hits me up. I vet them out. I take several meetings, phone conferences, whatever I need to, because I want to decide, is this something that I want to work on? It's, it goes both ways. It, it's them feeling me out. Hey, is this the right guy for my project? And me going, hey, is this going to be worth my time? Is this something I'm going to be excited about? That's a very fortunate position to be in. Congratulations for getting to that point in your career. One of the terms I hate most that people use is like, must be nice. Like I fucking hate it when I hear people say that because it's passive aggressive 
and lined with envy and makes me hate somebody when they say that. So like, <laughs> I want to make sure that you understand that like, I, I'm giving you sincere congratulations and I want to discuss this a little bit, but I don't want at all for you to think that I must be nicing you at all, but it really, but it really must be nice to finally be at a point in your career where you can interview who's going to come in and make sure that it's good for you. No, definitely. And it's taken a lot of time to get to this point. It's not something that just, you can just start off doing. That's for sure. That's another thing that those business gurus tell you to do that is asking people to commit suicide, basically, because they'll tell you, you should choose your clients, fire the wrong kind of clients, because, you know, you'll do better work working with the right kind of clients. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But you have to get to the point where you're able to. You can't do that. If you do that at the wrong point in your career, the only person you're firing is your future. Yep. I mean, you still have bills to pay. So if you're firing everyone off left and right, your bills aren't getting paid. You know, if you're turning every project down just because you don't like it, you're not paying your bills. Like you still have to be reasonable with it. I mean, there's probably a handful of projects I'll still take on if I don't like it, but it's more so their rate or what their budget is, is good enough for me to take it on and and put effort into it, you know? Well, you're still vetting it, right? Like, and the vetting process, I'm sure there's multiple criteria in there to where there's a kind of like in a video game where, you know, a character has like different stats and you max certain out at the expense (laughs) of others. But like, so maybe the, like the music stat goes down a bunch, but the budget stat is real high. It can balance out. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I much more want to work with cool people than like the most absolute talented person ever in the world. And it's because it's, I've done that. You know, I've worked with insane singers, but they're like assholes. It's not fun. I say this every now and then. It's like, if I want to be miserable working, I'll go get a fucking desk job. Why am I producing? I don't want to be miserable while I work. So I vet everyone out and I go, yeah, this seems like it's going to be a good, fun experience. I'm interested into this, you know, not, well, this seems like it's going to be shit, but oh, well, I'll do it anyway. You know, I'd rather work with someone cool than like the best singer ever. One of my old partners used to call it the stress to money ratio. Yep. Bingo. Sometimes there's not enough money in the project to warrant the stress that that person is going to cause. And that's where you ask for a ton of money. Yeah, the fuck off rate. <laughs> you have to ask, you have to ask for enough. <laughs> yeah, you have to ask for enough money to make the stress to money ratio work out for you. Exactly right. I agree. But you also have to be at a point in your career where you can do that. I've done it. I'll admit it. I've done it. Definitely. It's worked out. Oh, for sure. And usually throughout the process, I can kind of coach them in a way and all the things that were red flags to me, I can usually get through them with the artist and explain why they're red flags, why I was hesitant on taking on the project in the first place, why I didn't want to. And usually they're repeat artists and they want to come back. And those next times, you know, they're getting the normal rate. They think they're getting a hookup and it's all good. And I don't have those problems with them because they're cool and we've worked together and I've explained how not to be a shitty person. You know, <laughs> what's what's really funny. I feel comfortable repeating this because Machine and Chris Adler talked about this openly on the podcast. Machine was saying that he didn't want to go back to work with Lamb of God on, I believe the record Sacrament was their second record together, which is the one that we did a song off of on Nail the Mix, which went gold. They have two gold records together. He didn't want to do that one because they were so hard to work with. We talked about it at length. It actually a really funny 
enlightening episode. It's just super entertaining, too, because they were just so open about the fights and the brutality and like how much they didn't get along. And Lamagod didn't want him back. But at some point, they realized that something about that guy and them, something about their chemistry sets the world on fire. And so they convinced him to come back, but he really didn't want to. They figured out a way to make it work. I think it's interesting you say that some of these are repeat clients that you don't want to go back to because of all the red flags. Somehow you figure it out. Yeah. I mean, not always. And I didn't say clients, by the way. I don't ever say clients. They're artists. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that, it's, a, it's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> you don't like the word clients? Yeah, it, it irks me. It's so, I mean, oh, here we go. Oh, here not a serious question. Okay, we'll call them artists for you. No, I mean, I don't okay. mind explaining. Yeah, perfect. I'll explain over the music. No, it's, uh, it, it, it's more clients feels very like we're transferring funds from your pocket to mine. And it doesn't sound like I, it's not like as invested. I don't see it as much of a creative investment, more so just a financial one. Okay, fair enough. I mean, hey, if that's what you associate it with, then you shouldn't call them clients. It all comes back to me vetting them out. Okay, the people that I that take on fuck off rates, those are clients because I don't really want to be on the project, but I'm going to because it, it's smart for me to take it on financially, you know, for my family, mm-hmm. you know, my kids can eat, that kind of shit. That's a client. That's the whole point of me vetting them out is going, do I want to work with this artist or not? And so it's more so the creative side. I view myself more of like a creative than like a mm-hmm. business person, which is terrible when it comes to business, like in the business mindset. But I don't know, it's working business out. Business and so. art don't live well together. And I can tell you as someone who's done both that I used to think that that was bullshit that the business people just said. I would also used to think that like artists who hated business or just there's something wrong with them. No, I am now convinced business and art, they can't exist in the same space. They don't. I mean, that's partly why we get managers and shit, right? Absolutely. I mean, they take on that shit. They handle the the icky money stuff. I just be creative and and do my thing. Also, because there's the priorities of, if you're going pure art, are going to be different than the business bottom line priorities. And you've always got to find a balance, right? You have to find a balance because you do need to eat and you do need to sell a number of records enough to where you can be in business. But yeah, the overhead's covered and whatnot. If you were to go pure in either direction, you might have conflicts of interest. Like you might just have conflicts of interest. So definitely, but you don't want an artist to be any less than themselves. And you don't want a business person to get involved in something that, he or she doesn't know the first thing about. Nothing's worse than a business person who thinks they're a writer when they're not. Boom, there it is. So first thing that came to mind right there, you're, you're speaking about every publisher and every label I've worked with. You know, they're thinking directly of the business side of things and telling you to make changes based on what they think business-wise would be the best thing. And as a creative, you're like, yeah, but that's not what we're doing here. That's not what we're going for. You know, and it's just like the, this conflict. That's all label revisions are, are just conflict of interest between business and, and creative. Yeah, but there's typically a good balance that's hard fought often, but there is a balance in the end 
that I think that in order to have a, a successful offering for the world, I don't know how to say it because I don't mean that every situation has to be a compromise. No, there's compromises from both sides, though. Exactly. Yeah. There have to be compromises from both sides. And, dude, sometimes there are cases where you can go pure art and commerce will follow. Well, the trendsetters. Yeah, and that's a beautiful thing. Like, you remember the band Tool? Yeah. I'm not really a fan, never have been, but, like, I've always had a lot of respect for the fact that they could do what they did on a major label and get that big. It's kind of amazing. Or Well, yeah, so it's always left-to-field type stuff. It was always, like, way out there, and it fucking worked. Yeah, pure art. Yeah. Even a band like Muse who have singles, like still, they fall much closer to that pure art level or pure art category. And But somehow commerce worked out and there's a strong business side. I admire the shit out of that. I love it when that happens. Man, that's probably mainly the type of stuff I listen to. It's just the stuff that isn't, at least today in 2018, I'm probably listening to more stuff that's just purely art and they don't really care about the numbers and that all that stuff, you know. And it works out in that way because they are the only people doing this weird thing. Like Bjork, for example. Man, her stuff's so far out there and she's been doing it for like a billion years and it's amazing. You know, she's found her thing and people love her for that, which is awesome. She's not always chasing the next trend or whatnot. She's just like, no, I'm doing my thing over here. It's beautiful though, because commerce did follow. She's rich as fuck. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> yes, so it's a definitely. beautiful thing. The problem is that you can't manufacture that. Oh no. It's high risk. High yeah. Very high risk there. The artist can't manufacture the commercial success in those situations and the business people can't manufacture the art. That is one of those types of cases where it's just that artist happened to come around at the right time in the evolution of society, music technology and music distribution and whatever else and wrote the right type of music for the public to explode off of. It's nothing that anybody can ever predict or will ever be able to predict. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. But there's a whole other side to creating music, which is everybody else who didn't hit the magic universe equation. I'm just saying that, that like you don't have to hit magic universe equation oh, no. in order to do no. great. There is a marriage between art and commerce that can be found, and you can still do very, very well. 100%. Like I was talking about label revisions or publisher revisions. I mean, it's smart to look at them because there is some like legitimacy behind the things that they're talking about. If you're willing to take the different approach or, you know, straying away maybe a little bit from the overall vision that we had so we can make it commercially viable, so they know how to market it, so they know who are they putting this in front of, all those things. I get it. And I respect it. I definitely take everything into consideration. There's just, you know, sometimes you have to put your foot down and be like, no, we're we're not trying to make the, ch the next Chainsmoker song. We're trying to do this next thing over here. You know, we're trying to be the next chain smokers with this particular record. So I do agree that there is art and commerce do go hand in hand. It's just knowing when to take those notes and those things into consideration and, and actually give them the time of day. Don't just blow everything off just because your ego's hurt because... You know, they didn't like the first pass of whatever we were doing. Those business people are not out to get you. They're your team. They just are looking at it from a different angle. It
Most of the time. There's there are bad situations out there, but there's bad situations in any field, you know. But yeah. well sometimes, you know, A and R's are trying to meet a quota and that kind of stuff. I'm really jaded when it comes to uh the major music industry. Uh so I'm like I get it. I see I feel like I see both sides of it. I just don't think that Every situation is predatory or screwing. That's what I'm saying. Odds are they're not. It's it's always in the best interest of the record, and they're they're trying to make the best for everyone involved. Yeah, I get it. But yeah. there are some fucked up situations out there. But I guess the reason I'm saying is because I don't want people listening to this to go into it thinking automatically that they're going to get screwed. Like, you should be on the lookout, of course. Compromise does not mean that you lost anything. It doesn't, and it doesn't mean that you got screwed or anything like that. Like, it takes a team to put a record out. Yeah, as I say, it's a collaborative effort, and that even comes to the people that aren't doing anything creatively. They're still involved. They still have to put their neck out on the line and promote it and push it out and do everything on their side of things, and you want them to be comfortable enough to want to actually do that put the effort behind it. You don't want someone who's not interested in the record promoting it. That's that's not going to get promoted. This is the kiss of death. That's a quick way to kill the chances of a record going anywhere is to have the business team. Them shelve yeah. it after the fact. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that actually happened to my band. Like I know what that's like to have. Same. So, you know, the business team at the label, have got to be into it. Like, you have to play ball to a certain degree. Unless, if you're Slipknot or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. But I'm sure they had to play ball at the beginning, too. Definitely. For sure. There's, I guess, everything should be done level appropriate. Same way that you are talking about how you mostly can pick who you work with. There's a point where if you pull, like we said, where if you pull that card, you're going to starve. Yeah, definitely. It's all stepping stones to get to the points that you want to be at. And so you do have to make compromises, especially in the beginning. Shit, you, you should probably be going overly compromised in the beginning to you know, so you can really win these people over. That's how I view it. I agree completely. I still do that, man. I mean, not in going for production, but like I still take that attitude with what I do now. One of the ways that I translate that is at URM, we try to make our product offerings no-brainers for people, whether or not it's Definitely. the $20 subscription or it's a $300 course or it's a $1,000 ticket for the summit. No matter what level it's at, we try to add so much value, you know, that we could charge for, but we don't. Exactly. Dude, it's so cheap. <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> it's so cheap. Like, where is this shit 15 years ago when I needed it, you know? <laughs> well, the cheapness is by design. It is it is a no-brainer. Yeah, exactly. For sure. And I think that like that's kind of what you need to do as a producer too, when you need to make working with you a no-brainer. And part of how you do that is by giving them enough free work to where they love you and they love you and they're familiar with you. But it's also wise to mention that it's these are people that are like way above your level. Yes. Right? You're not gonna be necessarily doing this with your peers and for sure not with people below you. That it's oh well yeah there is of course. this Three, three-tiered thing. No, you're trying to build yourself and push your career up. So you're doing those things for the people that are way above where you're currently at in your career so you can get to the point where you almost even out with those new people. 
And then, you know, you're charging them your normal rates and you keep moving your way up. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Just haphazardly doing free work. Yeah, blindly. Blindly because yeah. you're a quote unquote good person or something. That's not going to work either. It definitely yeah, needs to definitely. be strategic and in a direction. Yeah. And, and that's something I noticed way early on with my career. I did a whole album for free for this band that I thought was amazing. They're from Chicago. I had them fly out, drive out. I don't even remember. And while they were in the studio, we were sending demos to A&Rs and they had offers from Century Media and Metal Blade while in the studio. And this is a whole fully 100% free album, right? But I knew that they were like way better than where I currently was, or at least the type of projects I was currently working on. You know, I got this artist to come out and trust me to take on their next project. You know, it paid off decently well, considering, you know, they signed and put out this this huge album. It's from, I've been doing this from the start. So you actually did get the the next record though. They broke up, of course, which is, uh, might've been part of my uh, hatred, not hatred, but distaste for metal and stuff was just, you know, things like that constantly happening throughout my career. You know, that's one of the reasons that I urge people that when they do free work for bands or if they try to do spec deals or whatever, first of all, don't do too many spec deals. And second of all, keep it short and sweet. Keep it to a song or two. I agree. That album too was when I was I was super young. I don't even know. That probably might have been like 2009. Or like I was young in my career. I mean, it was originally supposed to be a five song EP. They come out and I let them sweet talk me into doing a full length album. And that was a big regret. I learned from that though. I learned not to do that shit again. Don't let people talk me into shit that I'm not comfortable doing. Hey everybody, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, The producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, and Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content. And man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more.
Comfortable doing is a is key phrase here. You need to be comfortable with it the whole time. If you're not comfortable with it, there's probably something, there's a red flag somewhere that you're not paying attention to or that you're not listening to, and it generally will come back to bite you in the ass. You'll do a whole record for free, yep. and then the band will break up. They probably had given you signals that something about them was not stable or something, but you went with it, but you were blinded by the fact that the record deals were coming in. Yeah. And the size of the band and their project in comparison to where I was in my career, I felt like, all right, I'm willing to take the risk because this could be a really big thing for me. I mean, in the long run it was, but looking back, I still wouldn't have done it. I can't blame you though, man. We all get these situations sometimes where it's like, well, what would you have done? What would you expect? What could anyone have expected? you to do if you were nowhere in your career and you want a career and all these deals are coming in. It's like, would anyone have expected you to do? And the reason I say that is because around 2013, I knew that I really wanted out. Okay. I really, really wanted out. I wanted to start a company. I wanted to leave Florida. I wanted out of that studio. I had wanted out for like two years and I was vocal about it. Like I wanted out and I was very unhappy. This gig came along and I can't mention who it is, but one of the biggest artists of all time have sold over a hundred million records. Okay. One of the biggest of all time a member of the band was like telling me that he doesn't know when there's going to be a next record and it's kind of concerning him. Let's write one and present it to them. And oh, sick. he was pretty confident that if it was good enough, we're going to be able to talk them into at least a song or two or something. And I had to learn how to play in a very distinct style. I hadn't played guitar in like a year at that point. But I took lessons and practiced five hours a day. And within within a month, I was able to mimic this style note for note. And we wrote, over the course of four or five months, we wrote the best record. We wrote a record for this person that was on par with the good ones. And one of the good ones hadn't come out in like 20 years. It was like on par with the last good one. I'm confident Jeez. that if you heard it, you would agree. For whatever reason, like it didn't happen. It's not that the person heard it and said no. He thought some of the songs were cool, but other things came up that he had to do for like four years. And then it just never happened. He had something else that was bringing in tens of millions of dollars yep. that he couldn't not do it. And so then this record just never happened. So in those five or six months, while I was also doing production work, I was like giving a lot of these jobs to John Douglas. And I was like, my head wasn't in the game for the production stuff. And I, I screwed myself a bit with that. I had planned on getting out anyways, but in retrospect, smart to do that that way probably not but at the same time like how can you blame me either like this is it's like a learning experience though this is like a huge huge opportunity it didn't work out but if it had worked out oh yeah exactly who the hell knows what would have happened and so it's one of those things where i hear about your opportunity and it's like yeah okay so the band broke up of course the band broke up and of course you did a free album and I know how that shit goes but yep. live and learn but at the same time can't blame 
the person for taking that risk. Yeah, exactly. And fortunately for me, the album leaked. That helped a lot. <laughs> the album leaked. It was on all these pirating sites and whatnot. I was then able That's to be great. like, yo, I did that. And that helped a lot on people coming in because they heard that project. I definitely would do it again. I just question if I would do a full album or not. <laughs> if I would stick to the EP like I wanted to. <laughs> Nothing good really came out of this for me because I wasn't ever able to talk about it or show anything for it. Yeah. Like I can't. But the one thing though that did come out of it was when I realized it wasn't happening. I was really pretty mad, but I did not take it out on my contact. Oh, for sure. You say, oh, for sure. I mean, it was a risk for both of you, and you got to recognize that it was a risk for both of you. It was a risk for both of us, and he had a lot more to lose than me, but I was still mad. I mean, dude, I can stop all the time (laughs) when I lose out on test mixes or whatnot. I'm like, fuck this. I'm the best. You know, I I definitely should have got this, but it comes with the part of doing the free work. Yeah, You know, I know the risk. I'm not going to be happy if the outcome isn't how I want. Of course, I'm not going to be happy with that. But I knew that going into it. I I can't be upset that I didn't get something. Well, you can be. When I already knew... The thing is, I think you should be allowed to be upset. So here's the thing that I learned. I was not allowing myself to be upset, even though I was fucking not happy at all that like, because the payoff was huge and the amount of time I put into Uh it was huge. And so deep down inside, I was crushed, but I didn't show it. And what I learned from it, though, was that I handled it right because to this day, we're really good friends and it's a friend that I cherish. It's a contact that I cherish. I'm really, really glad to still have him in my life, able to call him up for advice and work together if needed or whatnot. It's great. And I also learned that it's okay to admit to myself that I was fucking crushed and really upset about it. But you can admit it to yourself without showing your ass to the world. The thing I didn't understand back then was how to like have both of those things exist. So I had to pretend like I wasn't upset Uh or else I would show my ass. But now I think you can be upset and like fully own the way you're feeling but that doesn't mean that you have to then take it out on somebody and like you both those things can exist and it's probably a lot healthier to accept if you feel like the universe just fucking handed it to you, just fucked you. <laughs> yeah. Universe did, not any particular person. So I've gone forward with life since then, trying to take that attitude when things don't work out of like admitting to myself that I am disappointed, like actually really disappointed about something not working out. Not a little bit, very Uh, But it's okay. And I can still be an adult about it. And like, I don't have to pretend I don't have to lie to myself and say, oh, no, I don't care. It would have been shitty anyways. Yeah, that's bullshit. Dude, that that was me a couple months ago. My favorite producer at the time in the whole world for like the last couple of years did a mix for him. You know, I offered a test mix for him. He was down. And at the time it would have been perfect, but he waited like two or three weeks to send me something. And the day he sent me something, I came down with really bad ear infections. It was super bad. And I had to try to push through it, sent out a mix and he never got back to me, even to this day. I've not heard back from him ever. And that bummed me out. It sucked because I knew, okay, I can't work. So I had to take the time off and I just had to sit with that feeling of being sad that I didn't get this gig. And then you could also be really mad at him for taking the three weeks to send it. Because if he hadn't taken three weeks, who knows what would have happened. Exactly. Exactly right. But I'm guessing that you didn't send him some hate mail or anything. Hell no. Well, exactly. I can't be a dude. The mix was bad. 
It was. I had ear infections. I couldn't hear anything. And so I can't be upset with him for not, not liking it. No, but you it. can it was be shit. upset, you can be upset with him for not sending it. Yeah. I mean, I know how it goes. I know how the creative process goes. He thinks the record's done, but the artist and the label and the, the publisher is going, no, we need these things changed. And it takes three weeks to get those changes over. I get it. Yeah. At least I try to be, maybe I'm just looking at it in a nice light. What I'm saying is it's legitimate to be mad at the fucking universe for not lining up, but it doesn't take anything away away from you to admit that the universe can go fuck itself for not lining <laughs> that up as I mean as long as you don't actually go take it out on anybody especially that producer no hell no it's not productive in my opinion and I think I do so much pitch work that I just I'm used to blowing things off I'm, I'm used to the 10 no's before the one yes you know mm-hmm. I mean I was more so bummed that it was my favorite producer and I, I just really wanted to work on his stuff more so than I just didn't get that gig it's really easy for me to blow it off and be on to the next one I have my schedules super booked up I got plenty of other things to work on I can't really uh, sit and sulk over one no. Maybe I'm just so super used to it and blowing off those things. I don't know. You know, I think people who are members of Nail the Mix who get upset when their mixes don't make it into the top 20 should be listening to this. <laughs> Dude, I see that a lot. It confuses me a bit, but I mean, I can't take that away from them, I guess. So here's what I think. It's okay for them to be upset that they didn't make it, but the posts they make about it are not okay. It's not productive. It's not productive. It makes them look bad. There's a lot of people in the group who are potential employers. Like you, for instance, are a potential employer. Yeah, definitely. You see them post Post this stuff. Does that seem like someone you would want to employ? Hell no. No, that's like, I mean, for some people, that could be blacklist stuff. Yeah. You're like, wow, okay, this is how they talk about this project. If something goes bad in the project that I want to hire them for, what the hell are they going to say publicly about that? That could really hurt your career, yeah, actually. Exactly. But I mean, I understand if they're disappointed, but I also think they shouldn't be disappointed. Sure. But that's me telling them that. Like, it's disappointment is not a rational thing. I don't don't think they should be disappointed because odds are stacked against you no matter what. Like in a test mix situation in the real world, like where you're testing for something, you're not up against 500 people. And it's already hard in your world to to land something when you're up against 10 people or 20 people. Especially when they're already the best, you know, when you're up against CLA and Manny and Serban and shit. It's kind of hard to be upset in my opinion. It's like these are the best in the world and the fact that I'm even competing with them. If they get turned down, that's cool that these labels and artists consider me on that level. I'm, you know, I'm stoked. That's a great way to look at it. So, I mean, up against 500 is just... Yeah, that's insane. Odds are you're not going to get it just because of the odds. Anyways, like the only reason we have that mixed competition is to impose a deadline so that people get it done before the class, because the class is way better if they've actually mixed the material ahead of time. Like it'll make more sense. Like they'll be able to relate to it way better than if it's just abstract. So yeah, that's a pretty lenient deadline as well. A whole month to mix a single song. Jesus. I would love it's that. like three weeks, but still, yeah, it's very lenient. <laughs> Dude, my deadlines are always, hey, when do you need this? And they respond with yesterday. Yeah. And I'm like, perfect. I'll get this to you in six hours. Uh, yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> I, I do know that. So that's that's what's funny about it is like you're complaining about not having enough time to do a good job, like three weeks. But yeah. let me sit you down and talk about life a little. I do think, though, that if people have ever gotten upset by not placing or winning, I feel you. I mean, if you haven't done anything big with your career yet and you're still very, very early, then this probably means a lot more to you than I don't want to diminish it. But the way you comport sure. yourself sure, sure. in 
the face of that is really, really important because people are watching. Well, and also you guys offer like one-on-ones, right? You know, the people that are dissatisfied with their placement of this, you know, competition, uh, why aren't they taking those Some into are. one-on-ones and saying, all right, what what can I improve? Okay, that's perfect. But I feel like if, if anyone's complaining, they should be doing that first, you know, before making a public post on a forum about it. Be hitting up the people that are listening to this and saying, what didn't you like? What should I improve? That's real world shit right there. I mean, you're going to send a mix out. They're going to say, I don't like it. You're, you need to respond and figure out what they don't like and improve upon that. And then in then future mixes, you know, OK, these people tend to like this over this and this and that over that. We have a lot of people who made that asshole idiot post a year or two ago and then got one-on-ones and like they'll post a year later and be like, I am so sorry I ever posted that. I listened back to that mix and (laughs) I've come so far. I can't believe that I was so arrogant that I thought that was a good mix. So I think that a lot of the time it's that they actually, yeah. they're so new at this that they don't even know that their mix isn't good. You know that being at that stage where like you, when you first start doing stuff that's like not terrible and you instantly think you're the shit. I, I remember those days. So I think that's what's happening yeah. a lot. Um, oh, so yeah. changing gears, <laughs> I want to talk about something that you told me we could bring up, which I think is very, very interesting because it came up in the group the other yeah. day. and. You just said we could talk about it, but like, so there was somebody who posted in the group, I think he's 17 or something. He was posting about how he wanted some advice on what to do because he's fucking hating high school and considering getting out. Uh, Like everyone was like, don't do it. Don't do it. And some people were getting kind of positive and uh, like, you can use the stuff in school. And I got in there and was like, no, don't do it because you're going to potentially fuck up the entire rest of your life and right now science shows that your brain is not developed enough to understand what long term you're not able to feel long term consequences and because of your age so you're going to have to trust us that this is something you can't really walk back from unless you're one, yeah. one of those really fortunate few you are one of those fortunate few because you dropped out of high yeah, school and lucky. Well, and also right. when you're that young i mean what what i wanted to be doing when i was that age is definitely not what i'm doing today i mean i would assume i wanted to tour in bands and that would be like my life mm-hmm. legacy <laughs> i tour with bands until i retire <laughs> hell yeah and that's just that that's not realistic Especially in today's climate. Hell, in high school, I probably wanted to be four or five different things. And none, I'm none of those now. I, I mean, I can't name them all, but I'm, I'm sure there was plenty of things going on in my head that I thought I wanted to do. So what point did you drop I mean, out? Uh, what grade? I guess I was a senior. I mean, by my age, that's not what I was on paper. On paper, I was probably still like a sophomore or junior. No, so you were bad actually, I was like sick. Uh, I dropped out of high school and I was I was in calculus and shit. So it wasn't necessarily just because I was slacking or whatnot. Wait, for a second when you were like, no, I was sick. I thought you meant you dropped I out because of a medical no, problem. No, you no, were no, no, sick. No, no, I was math. sick. I was deathly ill and, and I was missing so much school and missing so many assignments. No, I, oh, was. I okay. was. I was actually ill. Okay, so you were both yep. sick and Hello. sick. Okay. No, no, no. I was good at <laughs> school. Right. I was good at math. I was good at English. I was good at all my shit. I just wasn't there to get homework, turn it in, take tests, which are pretty much your entire grade. 
It was actually the dean of my yeah. school recommended that I dropped out because I mean, it got to a certain point. Shit, they probably don't want me to say that publicly, but fuck it. My dean of the school was like, hey, you should probably consider dropping out, getting your GED because you're so far behind and it doesn't look like you're getting any better anytime soon. Essentially, is what they said. So the universe fucked you yeah, basically yeah. with this one. So because in my case, when I almost dropped out, I was a terrible student. The adults in my life, uh, my dad had a lot of cool musician friends because he's a musician so I spoke to some of them so these cool adults in my life were like all this support you have from us right now for your career that you're going to have one day we're not going to support you if you drop out yeah. like don't do it just well, it's a lot it more out. than so just school it too out. it's like this shows yeah. that you can follow through with commitments you know which will carry over into your career it's a lot more than just the here and now you know it's like I even had a teacher because I had to go around to all my teachers and have them sign me out like agreeing to let me drop out and majority of them were probably like you know the music thing's not going to work out for you yada 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 but they didn't realize they thought I was just a bad student and it was like no like I can't I can't really like physically come and so yeah it's interesting (laughs) though because it's a lot more than just like getting good grades and that kind of shit it's it's showing up it's doing work it's I mean that's all mixing is there we go. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I have no, no that's shame. Perfect. I mean, but but really, that's what most mixing is. Is it's homework. It's taking what someone gives you, doing it on your spare time. That's how I view it. It's it. I mean, most of the time, it's unattended. Even mastering stuff, it's unattended work, but it's homework and they expect it back on a certain day. Yeah, absolutely right. So how were you able to overcome that stigma? Just not give a shit. All right. I don't know. I mean, for real though, like I just, if someone's going to hold that above me over like things that I'm doing in my career and fuck them, I mean, I don't care. <laughs> But how to get started? I don't know. Like, I mean, this kind of also goes against because I definitely think you should go through with it. I think you should continue with schooling. It it definitely doesn't make anything easier. Well, look here. Let me give you an example of something. I don't judge you at all for it. You've done great with your life. And to me, the fact that you dropped out is a non-thing, like whatever. It actually makes you more interesting and respectable to me because I know what you had to overcome. However, say that I'm trying out podcast editors and I have five podcast editors lined up and I find out one of them's a high school dropout. They better be fucking incredible or it's automatically next to the yep. next one. Yep. And same with an, hiring an engineer or whatever. Like, if yeah. they're not, like, the coolest person I've ever met, the smartest person I've ever met, and goddamn unbelievable at this engineering stuff I need to hire them for and, like, display all this great stuff, the moment I find that out, I'm already passing them yeah. by. Well, it, it comes back to what I was saying about commitment. It instantly puts this thing in your head where you're like, well, if they couldn't do their homework and do their, you know, whatever they needed to do to commit to finishing high school, are they going to be able to commit to this job that I'm trying to give them where I depend on them for my own income? You know, it's instantly a, a red flag. At least that's how I view it. Because I've had interns the same way where it's like, or assistants even. Ultimately, it comes down to how are you going to perform at the end of the day? But I can't help and shake that this red flag that they've already proven that they can't commit to things in the past. Yeah. So you would advise this guy to stick it out. 100%. Yeah. Without a doubt. And for multiple reasons. Like I said, even when I was in high school, I didn't know this is what I want to be doing. And for that guy, shit, man, he might 10 years down the road be like, who knows? 
That's that thing I'm talking about where the 17-year-old brain is not developed enough to understand long-term properly. And so you won't understand consequences and you'll also think that like a bunch of the stuff that you're doing now matters in a weird way. Yeah, it really does. (laughs) It really does. Yeah. And I guess it, even talking about this, it, it comes back to that, what I've been talking about, I guess, throughout, you know, through pitches or test mixes, high risk, high reward. I guess I was willing to take that high risk. So health-wise, how long did it take for you to get better? Uh, until I was like 24, 23, 24, somewhere around there. I don't really remember too much. So you had years. Oh, yeah of overcoming an illness as yeah. well. Yeah, it was, incredible. it was hard as fuck. <laughs> I can only imagine. So were you touring at that time? Yeah. How could you tour? I was. It was hard. It was really hard. It was people being open about it and communicating with my band, and they knew. And they knew if I was having an episode, they knew what to do, how to deal with it, all that kind of stuff. And to be honest, because I have like real bad seizures and stuff because of this. So I know the trigger points. I know when it's coming on. I know what I need to do to prevent it and whatnot. I was able to manage it while touring and stuff. But there definitely were at times where I would have an episode or something. And, you know, it was taken care of, though, because I had awesome bandmates and they understood and they were aware and knew what to do. Okay, well, that's good. So communication and the right support system. Yeah, and they knew the risk. They knew the risk of taking me out and that potentially, you know, screw up touring and whatnot. And there were were plenty of tours uh, that I actually had to miss out on. Half because I was producing an album or something. I mean, there were tours where I missed out on because I was literally in the hospital for weeks. And and they were completely cool with it. And we had plenty of subs that would come in and fill in. The owner of the studio that I rent a room out of now, he actually would sub for me on some tours. And he would go out for a month at a time. Yeah, I just had a lot of good friends that were willing to help me out through that hard time. What I find interesting is that you say that the teachers at your school didn't know you were sick, but it sounds like yeah. sounds like everybody else did. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. It was just a few dickhead teachers, really. <laughs> I, but the thing is, I don't think they actually cared about me. I mean, that sounds harsh and mean, but it probably that's the only didn't. thing I can sum it, it probably up. probably didn't. Is. Yeah, let's be real. They have 30 students a class, six classes a day, however many years that they've been doing it. I'm just another fly on the wall for them. Like I'm just another, just another kid. In their eyes, they think I'm just slacking around because my grades and poor performance or whatnot. I just think it's interesting that it's not like it was some secret. Um, the problem was I was undiagnosed for so many years, probably from 15 to that 22, 23 area. And then it took a couple of years to get better. I was undiagnosed completely. No one knew what was wrong. So I maybe, I don't remember high school that much. They just thought you had Because AIDS. of all this shit. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. No, I, I don't know. That's happened to me before. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I know. don't have AIDS. Maybe they asked you know, what's wrong with you? And I can tell them, I don't know. Then instantly in their head, they're like, he's just faking or fucking around or whatever. I don't when know. When I uh, got swine flu. Did you actually have swine flu? Oh, yes, I did. I almost what died. What the from- fuck? Yo, let me tell you, swine flu is not a conspiracy. That shit's real. That shit is very real and it's very terrible. I got it back in 2009 before it was very diagnosable. I don't know if you remember that summer, but a lot of people died from it that summer. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of people were 
saying that it was like a media conspiracy or some shit. It, it definitely was not. But uh, I was on tour and I got so sick that I couldn't continue. Like I couldn't continue. Like, and that never happens, but I couldn't do it. I was breaking fevers every like 30 minutes and then I would sweat like through all my clothes and then through like a full sleeping bag and then through the van bench to like all of it was like dripping and it was I was sick as fuck and so I w left tour in Hartford went to the ER they admitted me immediately and quarantined me like there was a whole huge emergency room full of like people with like their legs falling off and the emergency room from a comedy Jeez. movie or something yeah and like I walked in and they immediately quarantined me, did the hazmat suit thing, told me that they think I have full blown AIDS, <laughs> No, but that way. they won't be able to tell me this was on a Friday. They won't be able to tell me till Monday if I do or don't, because the weekend basically going to keep me alive till then. But I have to be quarantined, sat in this room in Hartford. The tour went on. I stayed in Hartford and I thought I might have AIDS for a full weekend. It was, it was so brutal. Yeah. Fucked up, man. If you're not confident in something, don't yeah. say it. Yeah. Well, they said that I matched all the <laughs> all the symptoms of a person with full blown AIDS at that age. Like, wow. like I had all the symptoms from like not responding to certain medications to uh, like all of it. And I bet this whole time you're thinking, "What the fuck yeah, did I who, do? Who was it? Like, which <laughs> who was where, it? Who yeah. was it? Which band yeah. member or, was this? Or like, I think it was." this one girl in Texas. It was a bad, bad weekend. But then on Monday, the doctor came in and he was like, well, I've got good news and bad news. Good news is you don't have AIDS. Bad news is we don't know what the fuck you have. So you're staying here. So it took Damn. 10 days, 10 horrible days. So not years, but I know the feeling of being undiagnosed. It's garbage. <laughs> yeah, it's whack. I, mean, I can't even tell you the amount of doctors that have quote unquote diagnosed me. <laughs> It, it's unreal. I can't even tell you how many doctors I've seen in my life. It's an insane number that I choose not to acknowledge. I don't even know it. Yeah, I get it. So you toured through this and then you got better like 24, 25. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, for the most part, I still have like residual stuff. I'll never be cured of it. Like it doesn't go away, but it lays dormant. I know how to deal with it if it's annoying, mm -hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. And the way I looked at it was I just accepted the fact that I was fucked up and I didn't know how to deal with it. And so I was like, I could either lay in bed and be miserable or I can just go out and start doing what I want to do and deal with it. Because I'm going to have to deal with it regardless. If I'm in bed or if I'm on a bench in a bus or in a van touring, I'm going to be dealing with it regardless. So might as well be doing something exciting and that I want to be doing yeah. and deal with it there. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, and of course, there's times where I had to be in the hospital and that was not my choice, but that's how it goes. So it's just deal with it as it comes in. So as you were dealing with that and touring and transitioning into uh, production, did the high school thing ever get in your way? Because you never mentioned getting a job ever or anything. No, I was, what got in the way was being sick. I got a job out of high school. I was working at a bank, just doing like their filing and paperwork. Did you get a GED? I actually got my GED the day after I officially dropped out. Okay. It wasn't necessarily, I wasn't educated. I mean, I knew all the shit. I just couldn't be present, couldn't turn in the work, couldn't take the tests. So yeah, I got my GED immediately after, like literally the day after I dropped out, got that and and then went and got a job. I even went to community college where I thought they would be a bit more lenient on, uh, you know, not showing up and whatnot. But nope, they care. <laughs> they kicked me out of that, too. Ultimately, no, it hasn't really ever popped up because, I mean, since the bank 
I got lucky with the bank because I had a relative who was like one of the bank managers. And she was like, look, I can't give you like a full blown job, but you can do this paperwork. And, you know, we need someone to file it all because we're transitioning from going from paper to digital. So that's what I did for like half a year till it got to the point where like the head head manager was like, you look like shit. You can't be working here. You're scaring away customers, essentially, is what happened. And so I stopped working at the bank. And probably two or three months after that is when I started touring and then, you know, fully producing bands and whatnot. But yeah. So you are the the one person that managed to make it work. Somehow make, make it, it work. work. Yeah. That's yeah. real impressive. That's actually also considering the illness. It's just all really impressive. Eh. It is. I mean, it's my life. So to me, it's just normal. That's just how it is. So I don't look at it as that way. But I mean, I appreciate the kind words, the tumbling. I mean, it's not meant to be kind, not meant to be kind, bro. Uh, it is very impressive, but it seems like the success you've had is all despite of. It's not really at all because of, you know, you could have not gotten sick and graduated high school and probably had an easier time getting to where, where you are. For sure. I also like to believe that because I was sick and because I dropped out of high school and had all these obstacles, it's helped my career in a sense where I can really push through with things that I don't like or whatnot because I've gone through much, mm-hmm. much worse. At least that's how I try to spin it to be positive and that not ma- be upset that about, makes sense. <laughs> about everything. But that's very <laughs> different than if you just dropped out because you were lazy. It's very, very different. Oh, for sure. I would have been setting myself up for a real fucked up time. Yeah. Because if it was that easy, take care of something I didn't like is just drop out. <laughs> I mean, I'm setting myself up for anything in my life that I don't like. I just abandon it. And I don't think that's really a good trait to have. Yeah, absolutely. So talking about pushing through things. So you went to LA, uh, as has been established, and lots of people believe that the places is very oversaturated and they believe that work doesn't exist there or like Nashville or something, but you're thriving and you're in one of the most producer rich areas in the country. What is there anything that you can say about thriving in a place like that? So to be clear, I'm not in LA anymore. I actually moved back to Colorado recently simply because I'm in a place in my career where artists and labels trust me and they don't care. Well, you did your time. So you did your time in LA. Exactly. Honestly, it's lining yourself with people. I mean, I really vetted out if I should go. It took me a month to decide, maybe two or three weeks to decide if it was the right thing to do. And I'm frantically hitting everyone up that I know that are like way above my career level at the time, hitting everyone up and being like, look, I'm thinking about doing this. If I do it, do I have your support? Would you help me? (laughs) I feel a montage coming. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Oh sorry. my god. I dude, I love these these because to me they come out of nowhere. I'm like, yeah, oh shit, there's oh yeah. But no, it, all it was was it was just hitting up people up and being like, yo, if I do this, you know, do you got my back? And pretty much everyone did. I don't really know anyone that was like, nah, don't do it, don't come out here. And originally, I was actually only going to come out for three months, and it was to prove myself to the publisher that was like, well, if he's not in LA, we're not going to work with him. It was to prove myself to them and be like, look, I'm committed. I'm good. But then that three months turned into, you know, two and a half, three years or something. Do you have any advice for anybody who is nowhere in their career who do have their sights set on LA or Nashville or? Yeah. I mean, I would say reach out to people there and make sure you have a network before you even go. I know people literally go out there on a whim. What did you say LA was? LA was a place of no work. They said that they kind of believe that it can't exist there for them because it's so 
oversaturated. Yeah. I look at it like it's oversaturated. It is. I look at it as it's a place where dreams die, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> because they do. People go out there without making sure things are lined up for them beforehand. I also feel like this is a portion of where people are like, fuck the music industry. It just fucks people over and all that stuff. It's because they go out there and expect things to just happen. And that is far from anything that will ever happen. Like things aren't just going to line up for you because you were at the right place at the right time. That doesn't mean anything. Like you're not going to go out to LA knowing nobody and, you know, start working on major label projects. I mean, it, it is possible to go to LA, work on a really small level and work your way up for sure. But you're also competing with 10,000 other people that are doing the same exact thing. So for me, it was going out with a support system already in a network of people that knew I was coming out and were lining things up accordingly. Okay, so this next thing I want to talk about, if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. We won't, but I figured I'd ask anyways. So you mixed the majority of Christina Grimmie's posthumous album, All Is Vanity. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about... All but one song. Okay, so the majority of it. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges you faced on that record? Yeah, I mean, I'm down. Yeah, that was a tough one. Not only because of the deadlines, which were the most insane deadlines I've ever had, but just because of the project in general. And I guess for people who don't know, Christina was shot and killed on tour at one of her meet and greets after a show. And she was my producer partner's at the time girlfriend, Stephen Reza. That's his, that was his girlfriend at the time. So we were very close. She actually was supposed to be flying out overnight that night to LA and we had a two month block out to do her whole album. That was rough. That was hard. We were close and that didn't help mixing it. That's for sure. And a portion of me also feels like that's why they asked me to mix the whole thing. That makes sense. I mean, I was going to already. I had this other connection to the project. So like like the whole time I was actually talking directly to her parents and not even the label because that was put out through Republic and uh, Universal Music Group. And so they actually were completely hands off. And the parents had pretty much zero revisions for me. They were like, you know, we trust you. Christina trusted you. So if you think these are the moves and these are the mixes that are final, then we're going with that, which was really cool. I like that because, you know, Christina trusted me on what her mixes would have been and whatnot already. You said that there were two months booked out to mix or to produce? To produce. I was going to co-produce and co-write the album. So the current album that's released, I would say seven of the 10 songs were actually just demos. Got it. After she was killed, we took her laptop and went through all the demos. There were probably 30 to 40 on there. And shit, dude, some of them were like literally recorded through a MacBook microphone. And I, <laughs> I made it work for a fucking major label release. That was a pain, with, especially with the deadlines and whatnot. So the two months where it was, we were supposed to write full new records for this album. Uh, we have a room at Henson in Hollywood and we were going to do the whole two months there. I was about to ask, you didn't get to work right away, did you? No, no, not at all. All. They asked me if I wanted to do it and I actually turned it down. Um, that seems that seems kind of fucked up to just jump into it right away. No, it was like nine months until they were like, okay, we're ready to put out some of these demos. And that's actually why I didn't mix one of the songs. It went to Neil Everett. Is that right? I can't remember. Uh, he mixed the single or one of them because I turned it down. I was like, no, I'm not ready yet. I wasn't. I wasn't in a place to be working on it. Fair enough. I came around. I was, you know, eventually I warmed 
warmed up to the idea. Honestly, I didn't like how it sounded. I didn't like how that that mix came out. And I was like, this isn't how she would have wanted it. And so I was like, oh, let me, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to do it right. So when working with basically a series of demos or song fragments, would you basically just come up with complete arrangements and produce them from scratch? I only mixed. Okay. So originally I was supposed to co-produce and co-write. I would definitely was not in a place to do that. I stepped down from that position fully and I didn't do anything. I mean, I might have added little things like, I don't know, I think there should be a shaker here. Mm. Let's maybe do the hi-hats like this. Everyone is completely fine with it, but that I don't really consider that really the production side, even though it is that's I don't I don't view it that way right now. Fair enough. I remember they did that with uh, some John Lennon demos back, like when the Beatles anthology were released, and like Michael Jackson and other late great artists. Well, I haven't heard the Michael Jackson one. So the Beatles went in in like 1991 and just tracked everything else, and then they kept John Lennon's voice from the demo. It sounds interesting. Yeah, the song is called uh, Real Love, and there's one other one. The name is Escaping Me, but uh, Real Love is a great, great song, and it doesn't sound like they redid a demo or anything weird. It sounds like the Beatles, like like the good Beatles, too, but that's nice. what they did, because he had a whole archive of shit. Well, yeah, I mean, let's be real. No artist is sitting on zero music at a time. Yeah. So when they pass, there's usually a catalog of stuff that could be pulled from. It's questionable what are the motives behind putting out the music, which I get. I've heard it. I've had people even complain to me like, oh, you guys are just trying to profit off of her death and this kind of stuff. But personally, knowing Christina, I'm like, she wanted this music to be out to her fans and to the world, you know? So I don't know. It's interesting. It's like, what do you do in that situation, you know? Well, I figure that the people closest would be the ones to know what should be done. I agree. You know, like, how can a stranger say that? They don't know. I can see the point of view, though. I could see from the outside how it could look. I can't, like, discredit their claims of whatever. I mean, no, I could. For the Christina one specifically, I can be like, no, I personally knew Christina. She would want this to be out. She would want everything to be out. But then if you say that, people should believe it. I hope so. It's not like they have any other source of info. In my opinion, I don't know what you do in that situation, but I... 99% of the time, I trust what the people closest say, unless there's just something that's seriously red flaggy about it. Yeah. Like, there's no point in this release. Like, why are you doing this? I agree. I can see the outside opinions of people being like, you're just doing this to make profit off of the death. I don't think so. But there are cases where even I'm like, hmm, that's weird. This is literally just a money move. Yeah. Well, also, uh, shout out to Joel, because he mastered all the Grimmy stuff for me. Did? Yeah, he he mastered all of it. There was an EP and then the full-length album. And honestly, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have made the deadlines because having Joel on and, you know, just someone that I trust completely, I knew I could send over the mixes to him and not have to worry about anything. And he would come through for me and do it immediately, which are what pop deadlines are. It's I wasn't joking earlier when I said pop deadlines are yesterday. That is literally what they are. They're like, no, we needed we needed this already. So I knew Joel would be good for coming through for me and he he fucking killed it. That's one of Joel's biggest strengths actually is being able to do things that are really good very fast. Yeah. I mean not to toot my own horn, I feel like I'm the same way. I don't think I would be in a position where I am today if I couldn't do that. So very important. And it's also kind of rare. On this topic I, I, this is something I wanted to ask you about. You and Joel are good friends. Yeah. How do you even know that guy? Oh, I don't know. How do I? Joel, if you're listening, 
<laughs> Let me know. How did we how did we get to know each other? I don't know. It might have just been online. Could have just been You're like, why are you guys friends? I, why the yeah, fuck are I, you I, friends I with Joel? I'm just, kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Joel's my friend. I, I, I bet it's from that uh the group that doesn't exist. I bet it stemmed from there. Is that where it's from? I feel like it could be. I, I don't know for sure. I mean, it's been so many years. I don't really, I don't really know. Well, just because I remember you came to a URM meetup in Chicago just to hang out with Joel. You weren't a URM member. And this was in like 2016. Yeah, I was crashing at his place. But that's because we were working on a project at the time. It was kind of getting stagnant. And I wanted to make a statement and let it be known that I was dead ass serious about this project. And I'll fly my ass out to Wisconsin and sleep on a couch if I needed to. And that's what I did. And so I just arranged it around the time that that meetup was happening anyway. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, which that project, uh, I think it's actually coming out here in the next month or two. Oh, wow. Just cool. Yeah, you probably know about it. But I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about about it on podcast. I probably know about it. Yep. I'm glad that it's finally coming out. Same. We've had to do a couple workarounds, not do it exactly how we wanted to right now, but compromises, you know, we got to, we got to do what we need to do to get it out and get it put out. Sometimes I think something that people don't realize coming in to this world or just, I guess, anything where you have to create things is that some things take years to get made. And I always find it interesting when you hear about a movie, when you hear the producers and the lead actor or something who's also a producer sometimes talk about making some movie that's sick. Oftentimes they'll be like, well, we've been talking about this for 10 years we you know we had funding then the funding went away and like like there's this whole decade leading up to getting the movie even made yeah 10 years behind a two-hour thing yeah yeah yep i think a lot of people don't understand the patience you have to have for some of these things oh definitely i mean even when it comes to music though especially in the pitch world i could write something today maybe it doesn't even get picked up for two years and then it's still another year before it gets released it's a very very long process just to be creative. I mean, producers can relate too, though, because they have bands that have been working on this material for who knows how long. It comes in, they, you know, they come in for a month, they do an album, and then how many months until it's mixed, mastered, and released? You know, it could be three, it could be three years, who knows? It's not up to the original creators involved. There's so many outside factors that the public wouldn't see or they wouldn't even know. Yeah, I, I feel bad for software manufacturers get delayed and then people rail them it's like buddy i know you want your product well it's like do you think we don't want it really you think we want to sit around no it's a product this is how we make money (laughs) we want it out just as bad as everyone else if not more shit just takes time it just does speaking of which i feel like i've taken up enough of your time so i think this is a good place to end it mr seth munson thank you very much for coming on the podcast it's been excellent talking to you yeah thanks for having me and let me rant about random shit uh no problem I Anytime. Oh, oh. <laughs> Guy, this, this is awesome. This music I is love so this. good. <laughs> God, I, I really hope, I really hope that this music somehow makes it into the final. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Golden Age Premier. High-quality, vintage-style products at an affordable price point. To find out more, go to goldenagepremier.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fuse Audio Labs. Uncompromising emulations of classic and rare studio processors in revolutionary plug-in form. For more info, go to fuseaudiolabs.de to ask us questions. 
Make suggestions and interact. Visit URM.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.